Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast, where we talk with early stage entrepreneurs to understand what information they use to inform product roadmap, strategy, and market differentiation. Welcome to the podcast. Today we have Garrett Mintz, who's the founder and CEO of Ambition in Motion. Garrett, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start with a quick pitch for Ambition in Motion? Yeah, so Ambition in Motion increases the performance and productivity of teams by facilitating mentor relationships between team members. The way it works is we have everybody that's participating within a company complete a three-minute assessment so their team can be matched based on work orientation. Then we make matches happen. Then the participants receive structure on monthly mentor sessions. So we create agendas based on their shared work orientation. So then they're having a customized experience that allow them to grow that relationship. And then we manage and receive monthly updates on their participation and then measure engagement and changes in engagement over a six-month mentorship period. So we can see how effective the mentor program was over a period of time. And what's my experience if I'm a participant in that program walk through like from a user experience perspective at, at, is that all done through emails am i actually logging into something what does that look like for me yeah so what it looks like for you is you will receive a link from your managing director or whoever our ambition whoever our contact person is within the company sometimes it's the director of hr sometimes it's the director of operations sometimes it's the ceo you will receive a link from that person within your company to complete this 3 minute assessment that assessment then will lead you to logging in and having a login on our Ambition and Motion dashboard. And really what that does is it allows you to schedule your meetings with your matched mentor, provide your feedback on every single meeting, and then receive your agendas for each meeting. So it's something that you'll really only need to log into once a month, but it allows you to provide your feedback on each conversation. And yeah, ultimately, I guess, get your agenda on how that conversation can be structured. And the reason why the agendas are important is because it allows... Um, you to come in knowing exactly what the conversation is going to be like. And obviously, you can take that conversation wherever you'd like. And is there some underlying kind of science or mentorship model that you're leveraging behind the scenes to facilitate all of this? And I don't even know if that's asked well, but curious if this is just something that that you pull together or if this is leaning on a, a model or two behind the scenes. Yeah, well, absolutely. So we're very much data-based. We are totally data-driven. We are all about the research and the science behind why do some people get along with each other while other people don't for mentoring relationships. I mean, personally, our vision is a world where the vast majority of people are excited to go to work. When they're there, their expectations meet reality. And when they come home, they feel fulfilled. Everything we do works towards this outcome. So when it comes to the mentorship and mentoring relationships, when we first got started, We started in higher education. The initial idea was I had a lot of friends that were graduating. They were going into jobs and they, although on paper were looking great, their parents were super proud. They were making tons of money, but they were miserable. They'd get the uh, Sunday scaries or they'd have on their mug, like going to the grind or dreading Mondays. I wanted to do something so then their expectations could meet reality when it came to their work. So I started matching them with mentors. And so how I got started was I just focused on scale. I started at Indiana University, and then I grew it to a little over 300 campuses. And I didn't really focus 300 on... 300 campuses? That's correct. Yeah. 
So what I do is I partner with a lot of higher ed organizations. So like fraternities, sororities, honor societies, pre-professional societies. And that put us on a little over 300 campuses worldwide. Are you, do you, I feel like this has not come up in past conversations. Are you still working with campuses today then? Yeah, yeah. We're still working with campuses today. So, uh, so I guess a uh, neat trick about working with organizations in higher ed is that the rumors are true. It definitely can take a little bit longer for <laughs> sales to happen. So definitely you have to be patient and you have to work with them on, on what's going on in their world and what whatever their constraints are. But something that's unique is when something doesn't co- doesn't take up space as a line item, that time goes down a lot. It doesn't take, you don't have to go to as many boards or reviews or people looking at it and saying, oh, is it, how much money is it going to cost if it's for free? So that's essentially what we ended up doing was we ended up providing this program for free to all these campuses, all these organizations. And then we had it set up where the students were paying a deposit. And if alumni wanted to get involved and get a mentor, um, there was a fee assigned to that. But really, we were not making much cash and really focused on facilitating as many mentor relationships as we could and expanding our sphere of influence, essentially. How or why did you make the jump to corporate then? Talk, talk to me about that. Yeah. Um, so we made the, the jump to corporate for a few reasons. Financially, it made more sense. Uh, to jump to corporate because we really, even though we were on all those campuses, we really weren't making that much money. We were barely breaking even. And second, operationally, there it just was a lot easier to work with professionals. Um, and this is nothing against students, but sometimes you'd have some students that if in their mind, they think there's no recourse for blowing off their mentor, well, then they might blow off their mentor. But in a corporate setting, if you blow off your mentor, you could get fired. <laughs> you know, like, like a lot of the things like when we're putting together the work and like the effort to really put in the research and the science behind why people really get along together. And then like, you don't actually meet with the person you're supposed to meet with, for whatever reason, that's very frustrating. And so we found to have a lot more effectiveness when we were working with professionals. Got it. Nice. And how, how long... Well, yeah, maybe maybe this is a good transition into current status because the next set of question is really about where you guys are as a company today for somebody who's listening, just kind of paint a picture. And maybe the way to do that is maybe just paint the timeline briefly of kind of where you started and, and when and how you got to where you're at today. And any along the way, any vanity metrics you can share in terms of number of mentoring sessions on the platform, customers, revenue, and you don't have to share anything you don't want to, but some of those fun vanity metrics to help folks understand where you're at? Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, first off, for just any entrepreneurs out there, I think, I mean, and I, Mike, I think you'd probably agree with this. I think the first step is you just got to leap. You got to jump and you got to be unafraid of whatever failure might look like. And my story, I feel like, I don't know, it, it became easier. I think there's this precipice. I call it the screw it. Can, am I allowed to swear on here? Yeah, go for it. Cool. I call it the fuck it moment. And that's the moment where your social capital is low enough and the need to do something is high enough that you end up actually taking that action going for something. So for me, from age 15 to age 19, I was a drug dealer. Oh, 
Well, we're going to unpack that. All right. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. So I, I was a drug dealer. And at the end of my freshman year at Indiana University, I got arrested in an undercover operation by the Indiana University Police Department. I got five felony distribution charges and I was expelled from school. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that hit me like a brick wall. And um, up to that point in time in life, I thought success was you go to school, you get good grades, you get a job. And then somewhere along those lines, you just find yourself like as if it's puberty, it just kind of comes to you and happens. But ultimately, that's not how the world works. And um, no one that I had ever known that I thought was successful ever was a drug dealer. Okay, so how so walk me through. From being discharged from school to starting a company focused on college campuses. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, the first step was I enrolled in a program in St. George, Utah called At the Crossroads. And that helped me get connected with mentors. I mean, that's really where I first learned the power of mentorship and how mentors can help you both on a personal and a professional level. So I'm sorry, I can't leave this. So were you also taking drugs what, yeah, 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 yeah. I was, what kind of drugs? <laughs> like, how how deep are you willing to go here? Because I'm super interested. Yeah, I was selling marijuana, ecstasy, acid, mushrooms. So I would guess I would characterize it as like the typical party drugs. I wasn't doing like heroin okay. or anything like that. But yeah, I just you know I'd occasionally yeah use, but I also sold. And I think for me, just the kind of you want to unpack that for me, I have a drive to be needed. I have a high drive for significance. I like the idea of other people wanting me to be around them. And so for me, being a drug dealer when I was in high school and first freshman year of college, like I became, quote unquote, like a cool kid. I became needed and that made me feel really good. And um, I obviously was not exerting that drive in a healthy manner, but it was fulfilling my, my need to be needed, if that makes any sense. Yeah, totally. Then, okay, so then you, so you have a little bit of a wake up call with the five felonies. Yeah, was it your parents that then said you're doing this this program? And I'm I apologize, I've already forgotten the name. It's called At the Crossroads. No, yeah, um, I At, at the Crossroads. Yeah, so that was a very tough time. So I, I moved back home and I. Um, started working for my mom. She flips, she flipped houses at the time. And so I was doing a lot of like painting and just work around different houses that she had owned. And I, I, I knew that I didn't want to kind of sit back idly for things to happen. I didn't actually know what the next step would be. And I also knew that being in my hometown was not a healthy place for me because that's where I made a lot of my initial poor choices in the first place. With collaborating with my parents, had discovered at the crossroads as an option, and um, as a potential option. And yeah, I, I fortunately, with their help, was able to go. And briefly describe the at the crossroads program. Like, what what is the if you had to give the elevator pitch for that? What would that look like? Yeah, it's a program to help you more or less come to grips with the decisions that you've made in your life so far, and help you lead a productive life. Okay. Um, so it's not a rehab program per se. It's a, it, yeah, I definitely would not characterize it as a rehab program because I wasn't addicted to any drugs. I uh, just had made a lot of poor choices. And so for this program, it helped me really kind of figure out living on my own. How long was that, that program? I was there for a year. Okay. You, so you lived there for a year. But I had no idea. When I first came there, 
I mean, going to prison was a real possibility. I was, I'm 6'3", but at the time I was 160 and moving there, I mean, I lifted every single day. I, I went from 160 to 200. Jeez. Yeah, I was in very good shape. I, cause I mean, I knew that I'm, if, if there was a real chance that I was going to prison, my thought process was, well, shoot, you know, I'm not trying to get like raped in prison. Like, <laughs> like that's a real, they're, they're, those things go through your mind when you're in that type of situation. And that is something I was freaking out about. I bet they do. Yeah. All right. So you, so you end the, at the road, at the crossroads program at your what, 20 at this point in your twenties? Yeah, I was exactly. I I was 19. It was from age 19 to age 20. Okay. So you come out of there at 20, then what happens? Yeah. Well, while I was there, I think this is probably an important story to detail was while I was there, um, part of the mentorship that I had learned was the importance of just me being like on a professional level, professional mentorship. I had flown back to Munster through the Chicagoland area for a weekend to let my family know my life's getting on track. And while I'm on this flight, I'm sitting next to a guy Turns out he's the director of ground equipment for SkyWest Airlines. And by the time the plane lands, he offers me an internship on the spot doing financial analysis. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So it was cool. It was a great opportunity. It was a guy who'd taken me under his wing and became a mentor to me. And HR was freaking out because they were like, this guy, like, he's got like charges against him right now. Like, what are you doing, Troy? And Troy's like, you know, I'm taking this guy under my wing and, you know, we're, you know, we're hiring him. And, and Troy was high enough that he could make that decision. But yeah, I was, I was very lucky, very blessed that that could happen. And then after that, I started helping connect those other young people, young, you know, people around my age who are in that, the Crossroads program, connecting them with mentors in the community. Because yeah, I mean, a lot of times if you've got, uh, charge in your background, it's difficult to get a job and it's difficult for people to trust you. But when you ask someone to be a mentor for somebody else, it's a lot easier of a conversation to have. It's a lot easier to get a yes. I, yeah, that's amazing. Okay. So uh, keep walking me forward. What, what happens next? I live in a year, year in Utah. I get very lucky. Um, they see the work that I'm doing to help these other young people who are in similar situations as me. They see a lot of my work in the community and nonprofit work. They end up deciding to drop my felony charges to a misdemeanor conviction. Um, I get re-enrolled at Indiana University. I was not a direct admit to the Kelly School of Business. So fortunately, I got, because I had really good grades my freshman year, got accepted to the Kelly School of Business. And when I came back, I knew I wanted to do something impactful. And because I lost everything, my social capital was nothing. Ever, I'd embarrassed everybody who I'd known. So back to that whole point about, you know, when your social capital is low enough and the need to do something's high enough, yeah, you're going to do something. So I was ripe for being an entrepreneur. My social capital was nothing. I lost everything and it wasn't that bad at the bottom. And most people, I feel like, don't, don't challenge the status quo because of fearing whatever perceived social capital they got in their mind of what other people think about them. And for me, I had none of it. So I had nothing holding me back from trying something new and trying to do something that was positive. That's a very, um, oh man, I'm trying to think of the language he uses. Tim Ferriss talks about that uh, occasionally on his podcast when he shares some of his own own stories. And he has a name for it. It's like uh, fear setting, I think, might, might be what it is. But it's basically, he, you know, he talks about you you identify what, your big fears are like if I'm an entrepreneur and I lose everything, 
you know, what would that look like? And, you know, he has this thing and I'll probably butcher this a little bit, but he has this thing he does once a year where he, you know, basically wears the same clothes for, you know, a week or two, sleeps on the kitchen floor, doesn't eat, you know, that much food for that period of time, basically simulating poverty. And I think he said he does that every year with the whole idea of like, once you've immersed yourself in that bad outcome, right? If this, not that, you know, not that simulating it for a couple of weeks a year is really simulating what poverty is like, but just changing in your mind, this idea of like, well, look, you're probably going to be okay, right? It's not, it's not as bad as you think it is. It's hard to imagine that when you're living a very comfortable life and you have all of these things. But when you look at what the bad stuff really is, it, you know, you're probably not risking as much as you think you are by taking that risk. I mean, very much the language that you're using reminded me of that. Yeah. I've read the four hour work week. I'm a fan of Tim Ferriss. Um, but yeah, that's awesome. That's cool. I a hundred percent agree. All right. So uh, you're re-enrolled in Kelly. Now, do you, at this point, you're a couple of years removed, right? Do you even know anybody there anymore or have they all graduated and moved on? Yeah. Great question. So um, I do know a couple of people now they're seniors and I'm like restarting my sophomore year or they've graduated. And the big thing that I started observing was that there was a lot of my friends and a lot of people that I had known that they got their degree and they've got an amazing job. They're getting paid super well. On paper, it looks awesome. Their parents are extremely proud, but they were miserable and they were not happy with their work. And I wanted to do something so then I can help current students help their expectations meet reality. I wanted to do something so then they could feel like they knew what they were getting into. And mentorship is just such a recurring theme in my life. I just thought to myself, that is the move. That is the thing to do. I want to start helping people get connected with mentors. Got it. And paint a timeline for me now in terms of calendar years. When when did you start Ambition in Motion? What year is this? May of 2013. 2013. Yep. Okay. So then you're while you're going through school, you're getting Ambition in Motion off the ground. What does that look like? Yeah. So it was at the time I was doing i which is a business intensive course. And I was doing it over the summer. So it was nice that I was doing starting the business and going to business school at the same time because I felt like in fact, I think there are some people that think, oh, man, I couldn't start a business and go to school at the same time. And I can tell you that's not true at all. I would care to argue that my grades got better because I was running a business and was spending much less time studying. In fact, I spent very little time studying, but got substantially better grades because I was directly applying what I was learning in school to the business itself. Yeah, it's all very real. That's exactly it. As opposed to it being a theoretical, like try to memorize this thing. It's now, okay, this is my life and I get it now. These all things make sense to me. So I'm not spending much time at all studying, but I'm getting way better grades. Yeah, that was me in accounting. I I remember when I was getting my MBA, uh, I certainly understood the accounting well enough to pass a test, but like it wasn't real until developer town reached a, a size and scope that I was like, oh, that's why that's important. I get it. Like that makes sense now. Like, it, you know, like it, it wasn't like I, I understood it on paper, but never really internalized why a lot of those principles, methods, you know, different ways of, of viewing the world mattered uh, until I had something to really bounce it off of. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So keep going. Yeah. So uh, May 2013, I started. It starts as just me helping. The initial idea was to help people get mentors, but also to help them like hone in on exactly what degree they wanted to 
focus on because I was also noticing a lot of people were taking additional semesters. I did a lot of pro bono and free work. And um, I then started trying to charge for my services and my time. But typically, I was trying to sell to the student, them, the students themselves, and it would be their parents who would be paying me. And a lot of feedback I was getting was from these parents saying, I'm not about to pay $1,000 for this 20-year-old to you know, coach my child into helping him or her figure out his or her degree path or career path or get mentors. Like, this school should be doing these things. And therefore, I'm not going to pay for it. So I got, I totally fell hard, uh, fell flat on my face, and I didn't have a single sale. I was doing a lot of pro bono work. I knew what I was doing was effective because I was helping a lot of students that were coming up to me and being like, hey, I can't pay for this, but would you be willing to do like a beta test with me? And I say, sure. So that's how I got started. And then I studied abroad my junior year in China and just kind of took, a, I guess, four months away, four or five months away from the business. And then when I came back, I decided to reinvigorate it, but focus on just the mentorship component. And so I started building relationships with professionals in Bloomington. Um, and this was now 2014, summer of 2014. And I just asked them, would you be willing to be a mentor? And so I just became like a matchmaker, connecting students with these mentors. And they'd pay me, the students would pay me a hundred bucks for an intro. And so that's how I got started in the whole mentorship component. And I just was matching people based on career interest alone. Then I graduated from Kelly in 2015. And my parents, as a graduation gift, got me tickets to Tony Robbins. And that was a truly a life-changing event and experience for me. I suggest if you have the opportunity to check out a Tony Robbins event, I highly encourage it. I thought it was awesome. And at that event, I learned about how I could potentially teach people. I wanted to emulate Tony Robbins. I wanted to teach people the skills for networking because what I was realizing was when I was matching people together to meet with these mentors, they weren't necessarily prepared and equipped for actual networking. I'd sometimes get some of the mentors who reach out to me and say, Hey, Garrett, like, I'm glad that you connect me with that student. That's awesome. But like, he didn't really know what to ask or didn't really know like, how to communicate with me or didn't really follow up or do anything that you would expect a student to do or a young professional to do. And so I started teaching courses on campus, on Bloomington's campus, about how to network, how to build relationships. I kind of branded it as how to network like a drug dealer, how to network like someone <laughs> can't do a background check on you. All right. I got to dig into that a little bit. Uh, you can't just drop something like that and, and move on. So give me some tips and tricks for better networking? What are some of the most common pathologies you see and how do you fix them? Yeah. I mean, I think the first part is just taking massive action, um, which is such a Tony Robbins term, but ultimately it's just getting yourself out there and doing it. Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Outliers, talks about the 10,000 hour rule. He says, if you spend 10,000 hours doing anything, you'll become world-class at it. And for me, my focus was on relationship building. So I was focusing on three to five different people every single day that I could meet and ideally get to know. And that's something that I started when I was 19 years old. I learned a lot from that. And I just essentially what I was teaching students to do was a few different things. One, people don't care about you. They care about themselves. So when it comes to getting mentorship and guidance from somebody else, if they're spending the majority of the time talking, that's a great thing. That means that they're liking you more. Right. I mean, I've even had conversations with people, which I don't even know if you could call them conversations because I didn't really talk. 
but people would be like, man, you're just so authentic. You're just so genuine. And all I would do is just kind of reaffirm what they were saying and just kind of letting them go. But so often a misconception is, is that as a student, we need to give our whole elevator pitch or we need to tell them everything about us to make them interested in us. But in reality, it is you listening to them and taking a genuine interest in what they have to say that makes them interested in you. But if I'm slightly introverted and haven't done a lot of networking and don't know how to get somebody talking about themselves, what do I do? Yeah, you get the nose out of the way early. You get the face plans out of the way early. You practice, you meet with different people, you go into what would seem to be low risk environments, which by the way, I recognize for introverted people is a really big step because you don't inherently think I'm going to go talk to the stranger that I've never met before. But what I've learned is that networking is a skill like shooting a basketball or knitting a quilt. The more you practice it, the better you get at it. What I would do is I would work on taking students into low risk environments, whether that be the local library, like the, 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 you know, the student library or going to the union and walking up to random strangers and introducing themselves and asking if they had a couple minutes of chat just so then they could practice meeting with other people and connecting with other people and having conversations. And I'd have them come prepared with a list of questions that they could ask them to get to know about them, but practice having conversations. And then when you go into some low risk environments and you start getting some positive feedback, you feel a lot more comfortable going to a professional asking them those same questions. Interesting. This episode is brought to you by Full Stack PEO. Most founders start companies because they figured out a better way to solve a problem or serve a need, not because they love tracking payroll, filling out compliance forms, and explaining employee benefits packages. And yet, all that stuff still has to be done. That's why there's Full Stack PEO. Full Stack PEO specializes in turnkey HR for emerging companies, not just those core services, but advice and expertise that help founders maximize employee potential. Curious? Find out more at fullstackpeo.com. All right, let's keep going. So uh, you're, you attended the Tony Robbins class. You started offering these uh, networking classes on campus. Uh, what happens next? Yep. Um, so we started growing these classes. We're averaging like 20 students a semester. We're getting a lot of traction with the Greek system at Indiana University. A lot and these are, I, I mean, I, I guess I made this assumption. I want to make sure this is right. These are not classes offered through the school, right? You're just no. putting up flyers and doing this on the side. This is side 100%. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. These are yeah. literally me hosting workshops in like, it started in like the Monroe County Public History Museum, which is like this little building off of kind of like not on Kirkwood, but kind of like adjacent to Kirkwood that you'd never, ever heard of. But they had an open meeting space and they were only charging like 10 bucks for two hours of renting out like their meeting space. It was pretty cheap. And they yeah, they weren't on campus, but they were close to campus. Eventually, they moved to the basements of fraternities and sororities, which typically had like big open meeting rooms, but were rarely ever used. Um, but anyways, we ended up having a, a young woman who was the director of alumni relations for a sorority and they were tearing down their house, they're rebuilding it and they wanted to put on a alumni raising like money raising campaign. So she approached me to see if we could use our mentorship connection and, and program to connect her students in her chapter with alumni. So then ideally you could get them back involved and engage and potentially donate to help build that new chapter house. Awesome. And that's where I learned about a potential opportunity. And so um, I started working with her sorority and then I started working with some more individual chapters. And 
I ended up realizing that it was really difficult to sell to, especially fraternities and sororities, because on an individual chapter basis, at least at the price point that we were charging, because the president changed every year. And so there was just not consistency. It was very difficult for them to organize and just get their shit together. So I realized I wanted to do this on a national level. And as I went to the national level, I ended up realizing that you know, to do it across all 50 chapters a national organization may have, or all 150 or all 200 chapters that a national organization may have, it would be prohibitively expensive for them. And I was also recognizing that my competitors who were also running mentor programs, they, it was just a race to the bottom, essentially. It was, they, they were just providing the tech and it would be more or less like an open, like a self-serve, like here's a bunch of alumni that said they'd be willing to mentor. If you want to use it, students, go ahead. If you don't, it's whatever. And that was it. And so it was just a tech tech play. It was kind of like an open, it was like a white label LinkedIn group page. Who are those competitors? Do you remember any of them at the Yeah, oh yeah. So we got Graduate, we've got um, People Grow, we got First Hand, and their tech is great. Their tech was way like Blue R's out of the water. They're they're really all of them are excellent. So yeah, those first hand, people grow, graduate. They do excellent work in the space of mentorship as it comes to the the, the technology. But when it comes to the actual matching and the structure and the gathering feedback and the marketing of the program and getting people to use it, they didn't really provide any of that. And that's where I differentiated myself. But what I was realizing was that these national organizations were struggling to see the, I guess, the value of helping market the program. So I ended up just offering it for free. (laughs) I'm noticing a pattern. Okay. Yeah. So I ended up offering it for free, um, but where the students paid a deposit to to go through the program. And I, my logic was, let's be like Facebook. Let's just scale it as much as we can. We'll go to all 300 of these campuses and we'll, we'll try to impact as many students as we could. And, and we did. And um, that was great, but we weren't really making money. Now, real quick, how does that deposit work? So when you say deposit, does that mean you're putting 50 bucks on deposit and you get that back? Yep. So long as long as you don't blow off your mentor and you don't blow off the program. Got it. So that's the skin in the game. Yep, if exactly. you blow off the mentor, we cash that check, you lost that money. You got it. That's exactly it. How big was that deposit? 50 bucks. Okay. Do you feel like that was appropriate skin in the game? Was that a real motivator? Yeah, it was. It was. I will say, though, I, I mean, even looking at it now, it's still sometimes frustrating because it definitely does devalue what you provide and your service that you're offering in a sense that, you know, you get some students who be like, oh, I missed the workshop. Can I still like get my deposit? It's like, no, you've defeated the purpose of the deposit by not going to a workshop. Like I bring in world-class speakers to join our workshops. They're only request, and they normally will get paid thousands of dollars for a 30 minute segment. They're doing this hour for free because they want to impact students. Their only request of me is that I bring students to the YouTube live workshop. If you show up and watch the recording at a later date, that does nothing. You know what I mean? Like that defeats the purpose of me wanting you to be at the workshop and, and seeing them live and asking them and interacting with them. Right. I don't know. It was a model I went with. And um, I think from an effectiveness perspective, it certainly worked. In, in the sense that it definitely got more students involved and engaged and they were taking it a lot more seriously. How long timeline-wise? So you started that around 2015, I think, right? And then you ran that for how long? Yeah. So actually, so that, so that we, starting with the individual fraternity and sorority chapters, because we were working on a semesterly basis, it took a little bit longer than that. So we, 
we started with our very first fraternity and sorority contract um, in 2017. So I was doing the individual like on-campus Indiana University like mentorship program where students were paying me to go to my course every semester. They were paying me a hundred bucks for each person. We have like about like 20 people each semester. So I was still working on the side to supplement my income. And then 2017, we got our very first sorority contract. And then we grew that to five. And then we grew that to 10. And then we ended up not having the deposit model and the organization, the, the individual chapters were paying. And then I was realizing the issues with that whole model by essentially the end of the fall, the end of the spring semester of 2018. And so for the fall semester of 2018 is when we first implemented the deposit. And that worked out substantially better. Fall 2018, spring of 2019, we're still doing the deposit. But by the spring of 2019, we landed our first two national deals. And that put us on a little over 300 campuses. And then we landed more national deals. And you did that in two years? Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. We landed that net, those two national contracts. And then we landed a, a couple more national contracts for over this past summer. And then we got restarted again in the fall. And, you know, we're just our signup rates were, were good, but it, we just were realizing that financially it wasn't making any sense. And so we wanted to see if there was a different market that would be able to compensate us for our service, but had a more direct impact on their bottom line and their, their, I guess, I guess impact. So then we could justify charging really what we deserve to make. And so that's where we pivoted to companies. Now we that's and so that was this year. That was in October, yeah. So then, very recent. Okay, but you've you've got corporate clients, right? We do. We got two. That's amazing. Awesome, man. All right, and then how how big is the team? Is it uh, is it just you? Um, so it's myself. We've got our developer John Mark, and then Dave is our sales partner slash advisor. Okay, I'm gonna pop the stack way back to to finding, to building the right mentee-mentor relationship. Talk a little bit about that process that you guys leverage on your platform and, and what you're doing behind the scenes. Yeah, great question. So really what we observed when we first got started and I was just matching people together for mentoring relationships based on career interest alone or just because it seemed like you would really get along with this person just based on a LinkedIn profile or something like that. What I ended up learning was that only... 18% of those relationships actually lasted for six months or were considered both productive and quality by both participants. But what we, what we ended up learning, what, what I ended up doing was I ended up partnering with Kyle and Jake, who are our industrial organizational like psychology partners on our team. So Kyle's got his, he actually got his PhD in industrial organizational psychology from IU. Now he's a professor at Kansas State. Jake got his undergraduate degree in neuroscience at IU. Now he's getting his PhD in behavioral psychology at Penn State. Um, so super smart guys. We ended up learning. Uh, we ended up learning about this this research called work orientation, and so we started studying it and applying it. And so we started studying that back in 2017 when we first were started working with the fraternities and sororities, and we started applying this research methodology around mentor matching. And we ended up learning that when you align work orientation, by the way, work orientation is how you view your work. So some people view the work as a job. Some people view the work as a career. Some people view the work as a calling. And it's a spectrum and it's fluid. So it changes throughout your life. So maybe like right after college, you're very gung-ho, you're very career oriented. Then you start a family, you become more job oriented. Then you get closer to retirement, you become more calling oriented because you want to have more of an impact. But that's just like an example. Okay. How do you determine that? That's just through... 
an assessment that we created. An assessment. Okay. Yeah. So we created an assessment, which is our work orientation assessment. And we ended up, yeah, learning that when you match people together based on work orientation, that number goes from 18% to 72%. Which is amazing. So we, we realized that there was something there. We, we know that we're doing a lot in terms of the research on work orientation. We actually applied for a grant at the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology to publish some of our research about work orientation. But yeah, I mean, we know that when it comes to mentorship, work orientation has a huge impact. Do the mentee and the mentor know that their work orientation is a job, a career, or a calling? Like, do, do, like, is that disclosed to them or is it just you don't talk about any of that? It's just, hey, we think you would be great with you. Yeah, we first at first did not disclose it. At first, it was totally blind. And then we started showing it to them and saying like, hey, do you think this is accurate? And pretty much everybody's like, wow, that's totally me. How did you know that from only like 15 questions? And I mean, we've been doing it for a while. And so it's it's been cool that we've gotten a, such a positive response from that. But also by showing them their work orientation and then showing them their, their paired, their match mentees work orientation, it helps with them getting some context as to how that person views their work. And it helps make them more invested. It helps them become more invested in that relationship. Fast forward two years into the future, 20, late 2021, early 2022, paint a picture for what the business looks like then. Yeah. In 2022, by January of 2022, what's going to be, what's going to happen is we are going to be servicing companies between 20 and 500 employees. We'll probably actually start even expanding that to multiple, multi-thousand person companies. I say by January 2022, we'll probably have our first Fortune 500 partner on our books where we are matching their employees together for mentoring relationships and we're servicing and facilitating over 3,000 matches every six months and it's growing. Walk me through how you got to that math, 3,000 matches every six months. I might, to be honest, I'll probably have to like actually double check my numbers. I kind of came up with it off the top of my head right now. <laughs> Just can, okay. Don't worry about it. That's okay. Just, I was more interested conceptually. Like I'd love to know. Yeah. Like, let me, let me pull up. Like I do actually have this written down. I just didn't have it in front of me. And so. Oh, that, that's okay. I, I felt like no I need had to... to come up with a number of, you know, something that seemed good, but I, I can actually look at my deck that I created. Um, Semi-recently, I've updated my pitch deck and I can show you exactly what I put on. So while you're pulling that up, paint that picture again for five years from now. Yeah, five years from now, it it's it becomes the... It ultimately, it's not about, I guess, competing against anybody. It's just creating more mentor opportunities. And ultimately, my vision is a world where the vast majority of people are excited to go to work. When they're there, their expectations meet reality. When they come home, they feel fulfilled. Everything I do works towards this. My goal is a future where we're taking, you know, un- like the amount of people that are disengaged. Because right now, I believe it's like 70% of, of employees in the United States are either not engaged or actively disengaged in their work. I want to reduce that number to less than 50%. So in, in five years, well, I know that sounds crazy and audacious, but even having the conversation and getting people aware and conscious that this is something that should be happening, that being mentorship and concentrating on engagement and people being engaged in the work is something that I, I would love to at least play a role and a hand in trying to get people more engaged in the work. So I love to see in five years have the United States 
data, when Gallup comes out with their new poll to find out that less than 50% of people are, or rather more than 50% of people are, are engaged in the work. Talk a little bit about how you motivate engagement or change engagement across the three different types, job, career, calling, like what, what's different there? How, if, so if I view it as just a job, how do you get me more engaged versus if I view it as a career, how do you get me more engaged? What, what kind of role does that play in how I view, how I engage with my, with my work? Yeah. So ultimately the key is that you don't feign, I guess the key here is that you don't manage people that is not in a way that's not consistent with their work orientation. See, the problem that happens oftentimes in companies is that people will subscribe to a one-size-fits-all management philosophy. So some people will think, oh, you know, only the best people are calling-oriented or only the best people are career-oriented or only the best people are job-oriented. And the way it manifests itself... So, for example, if somebody is job-oriented, having improvements to the comp plan or to the vacation days or to to things that allow you to have more work-life balance, like having more like potentially work at home days, that would be something that would be really attractive to someone who views their work as a job. But it would not be attractive to someone who views their work as a career or calling. That's like, I mean, those are nice. Those are cool things to have. But if you're a career-oriented person, you are somebody who is going to be substantially more uh, attracted to pursuing work that's going to allow you to grow and gain new skills. You're not going to be as keen on, you know, having that work-life balance or having that personal mission aligning with your professional mission. And then vice versa for calling. If you're someone who's calling oriented, a lot of the rah, rah, like let's invest in our culture. Let's, you know, let's um, like, let's talk about our mission statement and how what we're doing is really changing the world. That's going to be really impactful for a calling person, but for a career or job oriented person, that's not necessarily as motivating. Interesting. Thanks. I'm glad I asked that question. That made it a lot more concrete. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, in a mentoring relationship, like the reason why we hypothesize that work orientation is so effective is because people, when they're mentoring somebody else, everybody tries to be empathetic. Everyone tries to put themselves in other people's shoes, but your inherent value system is what is going to come out when it comes to the questions that you ask and the advice that you give. So if I'm a career oriented person, And I, let's say I'm really focused, let's say I've got a a dilemma, I am at work. And although my job is great, I like the people I'm around, um, I get, you know, time off for my family, and I'm making good money. But I feel like I'm at the height of like, where I can go, the person above me is relatively young, and doesn't seem like um, she's going anywhere in the in in the time being, I, I might think to myself, like, well, shoot, I don't know if if I can continue to grow as a professional here. What do I do? A job oriented person might ask questions like, well, you know, are you are you getting paid well? Are you getting enough time off to be with your family? Are you getting enough work life balance? If that's the case, I don't understand what the problem is. Or a calling oriented person might say something along the lines of, well, are you doing work that's making an impact? Like, is it meaningful to you? If that's the case, like, I don't know what the problem is. Why, you know, do you need to have that next promotion or do you need to learn those new skills? Does that make sense? It does. Can I ask a cynical question? Please. Paint the picture for me of how those one-on-one mentor-mentee relationships feed back into the organization to actually affect change. Because the cynic in me believes, while yes, you can get, you can match up person A with person B within my organization and the two of them can have a very positive interaction that, you know, in the moment 
feels more motivating to each of them potentially, right? Not, not just the mentee, but also to the mentor. But, but then if, if the organization doesn't reflect, you know, those values in, in beliefs over time, like if, if they don't see those opportunities become manifest in the organization, just talking about it doesn't, isn't actually going to influence anything. Right. So how do you, how do you close that loop to where, you know, the, the mentor, mentor mentee relationship there's out there's real outcomes from that that then affect the organization yeah so that's a great question that's like idea 2.0 from this is managerial insights is what i'm i'm branding it right now as managerial insights but anyways yeah the the whole concept is being able to educate managers middle managers upper management about what their direct how their direct reports view their work and then suggestions in coaching on how they can go about actually providing activities and tasks that are motivating to their direct reports based on the work orientation. So for example, if I'm career, if, if I'm a direct report or rather if I'm a manager and I know my direct reports career oriented, I know that they are going to be very motivated by timelines. They want to know what's going to happen when I call it like a tour of duty. So if I tell my direct report that's career oriented, like, Hey, in eight months, something's going to happen. And that could could be a title change. It could be a promotion. It could be them working on a new project or a new skill or a new test or something that's going to help them grow in a way that allows them to gain new skills or insights. But that's going to be extremely motivating to them because they know, okay, great. In eight months, I know something's going to happen. Because oftentimes in management, we don't, we don't communicate that something may happen within a certain period of time and employees or direct reports get antsy or they end up thinking to themselves like nothing's growing here. I don't think I've got upward mobility. So I'm going to leave and go on to a different company, which is obviously way more expensive to the company than had they known that, you know, they could have given this person more or less a, a tour of duty, a timeline for something's going to happen, something to look forward to. And that makes them more intrigued, more excited about what can happen further down the line. Got it. How will you know when you've got product market fit? I'll know that we have product market fit when, because a lot of times when we work with companies, what will happen is they'll say, because this is still a relatively new concept, that being implementing mentor programs for employees. What I will do is, what we'll typically do is we'll, we'll typically start with a select group of people, typically about a fourth to like between 25 and 50% of their employees will get started with. So it won't be everybody right off the boat, but it gets, it's a starting point. And I'll know that we have product market fit when we go from starting with that initial pilot group to getting to at least 75% of their employees using the mentor program. Right on. I like that. That's very crisp. Uh, how far away do you think that now I'm just asking you to guess, there's no real right answer to this. How, how far away do you think you are from that? Yeah, I mean, we've gotten, like I said, our, our initial our initial sales so far um, on the corporate level. We've got two companies that we're piloting with, that we're starting with, and we're using this initial pilot group, which is right around between a fourth and a third of their company. Ultimately, we'll ideally know by June 30th, or rather July 1st, you know, if we're able to expand those contracts to more people at their company. Nice. All right. Garrett, if uh, folks wanted to get in touch with you personally, or if they want to learn more about Ambition in Motion, how can they do that? Yeah, so you can contact me personally. I'm more than fine with putting out my email. It's Garrett, so G-A-R-R-E-T-T, at ambition-in-motion.com. So like a hyphen. 
And then if you go to our website, which is ambition-in-motion.com, and you click on start a program, you can essentially click on the button that says preview the program. And the cool part about that is you can actually take a work orientation assessment for yourself and schedule a call with me. So I can actually walk you through your work orientation, show you how that would impact a mentoring relationship, and then what that could look like for your company or organization. Awesome. Garrett, amazing story. Uh, Not at all what I was expecting. Thank you so much for being transparent and going that deep. Can't wait to follow up with you in a few months to see how things are going. I appreciate that, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. If you're thinking of launching a SaaS product, startup competitors can provide data on your closest competitors, survey potential users, or provide other product validation services. Learn more at startupcompetitors.com.